Good morning, Miss Dio. Um, the passage today is Colossians 1, 1 through 13. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all of God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Amen. Thank you, Meg. So today, uh, we are finishing up our series entitled Letters to the Churches. And if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, then you have um, heard some of this, hopefully. But what we have been trying to do over the last couple of weeks is read portions of the New Testament letters that we are probably very familiar with. We've probably read Paul's words whether it's to the Romans or the Corinthians or even this passage today from Colossians. We're probably familiar with this text, familiar with the language of it. But the goal that we've had is to read these letters as though they were written to us. And then to invite ourselves to personally respond to the correspondence of these New Testament letters. Sometimes we forget because these letters are old, that they were written to real people with real stories by real people with real stories. So in our very first week of gathering together, we talked about remembering. And when Paul asked the church in Ephesus to remember, they would have had things that came to mind. They would have remembered their crazy uncle who first encountered Paul and had a weird story about it. There would have been history and family and tension and drama and joy, just like all of our memories have. That would have been evoked in that conversation. They would have remembered something. These letters are written to real people from real places. And so as we reflect on them as real letters written to real people, what I think it enables us to do or what it invites us to do is to similarly reflect on them in a much more personal and intimate way. So when Paul says, remember, well, what do you remember 
about your first encounters with Jesus? What do you remember about your faith story? When Paul talks to the church and tells us that we are centered on something, that we have a shared hope, a shared unity, again, it would have been connected to real stories, real places, real dramas. And so what does it mean for us to be united around something, to find ourselves centered in the agape love of Jesus? What does that mean for us as a people and as a community? Now, we said at the beginning of the series that one of the reasons we were walking through these sections of letters is that we wanted to do some remembering work, some centering work, in order to prepare us to receive what God has for us. We compared this to like, our life being centered around a mountain. We've been talking about faith like a mountain. It's like our, our whole lives kind of live around the base of this mountain. And so some of this work has been about remembering what the mountain is. It's easy for us to get lost from the mountain in debates about whether you should build a gondola or buses to get to the mountain. And so what we're doing is saying, oh, do you remember that there is a mountain, like right at the center of this thing? Like that's what this conversation is about. Like a gondola is important. A bus is important. How you get into the mountain, it is important. Those are helpful, important, substantial conversations, but they only matter in as much as the mountain at the center of it matters. Others of us were hurt on the mountain. We fell, we tumbled while skiing, we got lost one day, and so the mountain for us feels like a place of triggered fear. And so the question that we're wrestling with as we look at the mountain is, is it worth going back into Is it worth exploring? Is it safe in there? Is it good in there? Is it okay to enter back into the mountain? And then some of us, we want to explore the mountain, but we're trying to figure out how do you live in the mountain? How do you explore a mountain? What changes about life when you're actually up there? What kind of gear do you need to bring? What kind of preparation do you need to make in order to live in the mountain? That's the work that we have been doing, sort of preparing work, remembering work. Today's question, though, as we wrap up this series, is what do you hope for when you get into the mountain? What do you anticipate? What do you pray for as you enter into the mountain? If you're like a backcountry skier, you're hoping for some of that gnar fresh pow. I wrote that in my notes, just so you know. That direct phrase. Or that's what you're hoping for. You're anticipating getting away from the tourists, getting away from those parts of the mountains that are already heavily groomed, getting back country, getting alone, getting something fresh. For me, I, I've told this story like a million times, but I tore my ACL two years ago. So for me, skiing isn't about getting in the back country. It's just like relearning how to ski and building some confidence about my own ability to ski. That's my hope, that if I can get into the mountains, I can kind of like get my ski legs again. And maybe not tear another ligament. So what do you hope for? What do you anticipate as you think about the mountain? And in the same kind of way, what do you anticipate or hope for in regards to your faith? We said last week that the mission of the Christian life is to grow into the agape love of Jesus. And we defined the agape love of Jesus as the unconditional esteem value, 
dignity and respect of God. Agape is that Greek phrase, the highest kind of love can possibly be expressed. And so we said the mission of the Christian life is to grow into belovedness, to grow into the dignity that God has, to grow into that kind of center. So then the question that we get to ask ourselves is what is possible in our lives if we are growing into that? What might we anticipate if we explore that mountain? What might happen in our life if we were to venture in a little further? If we didn't settle for car camping at the base of the mountain, but we actually wandered into it. What do you hope for or anticipate or pray for as Jesus' followers? There's no better time, I think, to ask this question because today is what we refer to in the church calendar as Christ our King Sunday. And in the liturgical calendar, which is like a calendar that governs churches, so, you know, not the Gregorian calendar we're all familiar with, Christ our King Sunday marks the last Sunday of the Christian year. Next Sunday begins Advent, which is, in, again, the Christian storied sense, the beginning of the year. We begin the year with the incarnation of Jesus, with the arrival of this gift of God. But Christ our King Sunday is that last Sunday. And kind of like the end of a year, I think it invites us into remembering, preparing, and looking forward, asking what do we anticipate, what do we hope about this next season, if we really believe that Jesus is Christ our King, as this Sunday declares, so what? What might be possible in our life? What hopes might we name? What anticipations might we set? The New Testament expresses these hopes and anticipations through prayers. The letters that we have been looking at throughout this series are full of prayers. Prayers that Paul makes or Peter makes or various authors make on behalf of the church. And again, they are real prayers by real people naming real situations. And these prayers identify the anticipation that the author has for the recipient. What they hope for these people, what they pray for for these people. And I think as we hear this prayer today, like we have throughout this whole series, what we are invited to do is make it our own at a deeply personal, deeply reflective way. Not abstract, not ethereally, but concretely. That this gets to be our hope and our prayer. The text that Megan read for us comes from Colossians chapter 1, and it is one of my favorite prayers in the New Testament. It begins, like so many of the prayers in the New Testament does, Paul starts with greetings, as any good letter does, reminding them who he is. In verse 3, he says, We give thanks always to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. We've done this since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and all of your love for God's people. He's just remembering them. The same work that we've done over the last couple of weeks, remembering the people, thanking God for the people, celebrating them. But then he does something that we just have to spend a good amount of time on because it is a marvelous statement. In verse 5, Paul says this, You have this faith and this love because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You previously heard about this hope through the true message. He's talking about like hearing the story of Jesus' love, the good news which has come to you. And here is what we need to pay attention to. 
This message, this good news story, has been bearing fruit and growing among you since the day you heard and understood God's grace. And in the same way, so in the same way that it's bearing fruit in you, it is also bearing fruit and growing in the whole world. We have to hold on to this verse for a second because this moment, verse 6, is the thesis or the heart of all of Paul's prayer in Colossians 1. Because he goes on to say in verse 9, because of this thing, because of what I just said in verse 6, I pray for you. So all of Paul's prayers, all of Paul's anticipations for the church come out of verse 6. And what Paul says in verse 6 is wild. He is saying that this message has been bearing fruit and growing in you since you understood God's grace. Paul is connecting wholeness. Fruit, growth is always connected to wholeness in the Bible. Life, goodness, like the, the coming into fullness of life. He's connecting it not to some display of works, not to some amazing plan, not to some capable thinking, but to understanding grace. That's a wild phrase. What does it mean to understand grace? Well, two words that have to be broken down. In the Greek, grace is the Greek word for gnosis. And have you ever heard anybody say uh, to know in the biblical sense? Like it's not a reference to what you know in your mind, you know what I mean? That's what this word comes from. It's not about simply what you know, though it can include details, informations, the word gnosis tends to imply knowing, experiencing, appreciating, or even receiving. It's a loaded Greek term. It can mean to get something into your body more than into your mind. And for Hebrew peoples, they don't separate minds and hearts and bodies the same way that moderns do. For them, it's all the same. So knowing means your whole self, your whole person is incorporated into the experience. If you know something in your head, you know it in your body. You know it in your emotions. You can't take one and separate it over here and say, I know it up here. It's all together. So to know means to have some kind of bodied understanding, bodied experience, whole person reception of something. So Paul says, you have a whole-bodied reception of something, and that's going to produce life in you. So then what is the thing you have a whole-body reception of? Grace. Now, grace is a word that Christians love, but it's actually kind of a loaded phrase. What does it mean to receive, to know, to understand grace? Well, again, the Greek in this moment is a very simple word in the ancient world. It's the word charis, which is most directly translated to gift. To gift. Paul loves to use the word gift to describe grace. It's his favorite word, in fact, to describe grace. He uses it all the time. And charis is a very common Greek word that speaks to gifts. One person would charis a birthday present. One person would charis a donation. One person would charis a kind word or an act of service. It's a gift. It's a simple act of benevolence to another. So what Paul is saying in this moment, 
is that if you want to grow into life, if you want to have wholeness, if you want to produce fruit, if you want to experience healing, then the key thing for the Christian is to know in a bodily way to receive a gift. Huh. To receive a gift. Last week we talked about how Jesus redefined all of spirituality by placing love at the very center of it. That so often we think of Christian spirituality or religion as we love God so much and we love others so much. But in John 13, Jesus tells us this radical thing, a new command I give to you. Love as you have been loved. And in that simple moment, Jesus redefines the heart of spirituality to say, no, no, this whole thing is about how much you have been loved. And because you have been loved so much, because you have been welcomed so much, because you have received so much, then you get to love. And in the same kind of way, Paul is transforming how we think about faith, how we think about life, and I think how we think about prayer and hope and anticipation. And he's revolving it all around the reception of a gift, that love is expressed through God's gift to us. And then Christian life for Paul becomes about receiving, knowing, experiencing, and appreciating God's gift. Now, what does it mean to receive a gift? What does it mean that we have received a gift? What does it mean to live into grace, to receive this gift of grace? Well, there's a marvelous book that I received as a gift. It's called Paul and the Gift, and I received it as a gift actually from my father-in-law, who's here with us today. Everybody wave at Aaron. Um, you don't actually have to do that. Uh, <laughs> but it's this marvelous book, and in it, this, old, this scholar named John Barclay spends like a thousand pages detailing what it means to receive grace and to think of grace as a gift. And so what I'm going to do right now is uh, take his thousand pages, put it into ten words, and three ideas. <laughs> but in the, Old Testament, in the ancient world, gifts were a central part of social life. So there's a lot of context for when Paul says that we're going to receive a gift. There's a lot of context, a lot of history, a lot of ideas that come with it. So there's some things that are helpful to know. But in his work, Barclay says that the first thing that we need to understand about any good gift is that they are personal. That all good gifts are at their heart personal gifts. Gifts are personal, and they are personal expressions of goodwill or love. And to receive a good gift is to be known. Now, I imagine that if you're in this room, you have probably received a bad gift that makes you feel unknown, which is strangely one of the worst experiences. You're like, I feel confused. I got something, and yet I feel like you don't know me at all, and now I'm offended by how you think of me. <laughs> Or we have received gifts that feel almost offensive because they are unknown to us. But good gifts speak to the very heart of a person. They offer something from the giver that is true of that person and that speaks to something that is true in the other. We give something from ourselves to someone. It's 
personal, it is tangible, it sees. I brought an example of a good gift that I received this way. For my 30th, um, Haley Burke, who's in the back in the sound booth, she gave me this notebook. And it is a beautiful notebook, but she filled it with quotes about food. Uh, Beautiful quotes about food and the power of table. And this is a beautiful gift because it speaks to something that is true about me, that I love to eat and cook. But I actually think it's more representative of something, that through Haley's relationship with me, I have grown far more to love to cook and to understand to cook. And what it symbolizes is that someone from the depths of their own person gave something to me that spoke to the very depths of who I am, and it called me into something more. Like there's some newer, bigger, better iteration of me that is possible from this gift of truth and reality that came from her to me. The gift of cooking, the gift of family, the gift that is personal to a person speaks to us and affects something in us. This is how God's gifts work. They are personal. They come from God, from the very personal part of who God is, and they speak to us in ways that are personal. Sometimes we have a way of abstracting God's gifts and making them theoretical or like ideas to be held up here, and we forget that there is something deeply intimate about this work that is meant to speak to the very heart of us from the very heart of God. So the very best gifts are personal, but they're not only personal, the very best gifts are also surprising. Even when we know what the gift is, a good gift is still surprising. It's startling, maybe even disarming. When you receive it, something unexpected happens in you. In the ancient Near East, gifts were a part of social life. And in many ways, gifts in the ancient world were actually about upholding social hierarchies. So, for example, in Rome, taxes did not pay for public works. The gifts of rich people paid for public works. And what they were meant to do was concretize the social hierarchy. I am rich, so I'm going to give you aqueducts so that you will not challenge my wealth too much and you will honor me and respect me and work for me. Similarly, we do something kind of similar today. Hospitals are paid for, universities are paid for, and you put the name there to give honor and credence, and they are gifts, but they do something. They elicit something. They're trying to produce some kind of effect in the world around you. And in the ancient Near East, they were intended to concretize social hierarchy, build honor for the person who gave the gift, And so they were also only given to people who were considered worthy of receiving the gift. Kings would give gifts to other kings. A husband might give a gift worthy of a bride. Dowries are not payments. They are supposedly gifts, right? But it's all about manipulating and coercing a social circumstance, a social situation in order to earn something, in order to privilege yourself to something. Paul takes this notion of gift. And he flips it so radically up on top of its head in a way that is, here is a gift that surprises all of the conditions, all of the hierarchies, all of the assumptions that we have made about life. In Galatians 3, 28, Paul says, because of this gift, there is now neither Jew nor Greek, there is no slave nor free, nor there is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
Paul's saying this gift is actually so surprising. What it does is upend social hierarchies that have defined Roman life together. You thought you were in a position of power because you were able to give good gifts. No, no, no. This one's so surprising. It's so big. It's so abundant that it makes us all just guests at the table who sit equally with one another. God's gift upends social hierarchies, and not just race or gender, but also hierarchies of achievement and social class. In Ephesians 2, verse 8 through 9, Paul says, You are saved by God's grace because of your faith. This is a gift. It's not something you possessed. It's not something you did. It's not even something you can be proud of. It's a gift. It's a surprising act of mercy, of compassion, a welcome home. Whatever hierarchies that were established, whatever you thought made you superior, whatever you believed made you superior, even internally, ah, it's all a gift. Welcome to the table where we all sit equal, even you with yourselves. Good gifts are surprising and they are disarming. And it's important to say good gifts are surprising and disarming, not because they are shaming or patronizing, but I think they're surprising and disarming because they speak to the very truth of us. We said last week that agape love is at the center, and agape love is defined as something that is dignifying. It's a dignifying love, a respecting love, an honoring love. So a gift that comes out of agape love is not a patronizing love. It is a respecting love. It is a love that restores us to our truest, most intimate, most real place. When we put identity in achievement, We're actually moving away from our truest sense of being, that we are beloved. So a gift restores us into that place. Not by shame, not by judgment, but I think by speaking truth to who we really are. These things are good. But no matter what happens externally, oh, love is still the center. One of my favorite gifts that I've ever received was an experience it was for my, I want to say, 29th birthday. And I, this is a little bit vulnerable telling you this because it's going to reveal to you if you didn't already know just how much of a nerd I am. But I think I'm 29, and Tori tells me that we're going to go to a nice dinner with friends. Like, so we're gonna, like, I get dressed up, I have like a nice bottle of wine, I'm feeling very hoity-toity about the entire event. And I can, I can get that way a little bit about food and about wine. I can act like I know what I'm talking about and that I'm very special. I'm probably wearing this exact outfit. We're like, we're getting ready to go to dinner. And she's like, okay, first thing we're going to do is we're going to go pick up your sister and your best friend. I was like, okay, great. So we drive there to go pick them up. I open the door. No one's ready for dinner. Instead, there is just boxes of terrible pizza, which is like my favorite, just bad pizza laid on the counter And they have prepared, this is the vulnerable part, just a massive Dungeons & Dragons campaign to play for my 29th birthday. That my my sister is going to lead, my best friend who doesn't want to play, who's never played, he's playing it. My wife, who does not want to play, is playing it. Another friend who is a little bit more willing, he's there playing it. And that's what we did. And it was totally surprising. And radically disarming. Because in that moment, something is speaking to a true part of me. Not that dinner at a nice restaurant wouldn't have been amazing. It's always great. 
But there is something true in me that is awakened when a gift is so surprising that it frees you to be a true version of yourself. I want to say almost childlike, but I don't want it to sound patronizing. Just the true part that God made you gets to come out in a true gift. There's no shame in that moment. There's no embarrassment in that moment. It's like we're together in this gifted place because these people have done something that is so true to me, personal, and from them. And it disarmed me. And I think restored in me something, and it invited me into something safe and good, and that is what a good gift does. And as good gifts are surprising, and as they are personal, good gifts are, at their heart, relational. Good gifts express love and curate love in others. God's gifts are expressions of God's love. Jesus describes his father as a good father who good, gives good gifts. The whole point is that this good God whose center is agape love, dignifying, respecting, honoring, restorative love, love gives good gifts. These gifts are an expression of, of God's love. And as we experience the gift of love, it produces in us love. If you've received a good gift, you know what it does, how it disarms, what it curates and cultivates in you. Good gifts spring forth love. I think you can't help but love when you receive a good gift. But here's the thing that's really fascinating about this. You would think that if we receive a good gift, What that should then do in us is lead us to give God back our gifts. And there's some truth to that. But Scripture is pretty clear that if you receive good gifts, where you then give good gifts is to those around you. So Jesus said in John 13, love those around you, love one another as you have been loved. 1 John 3, Jesus says, if you don't love, or John says, if you don't love one another, you don't even know God's love. That this thing moves from the center into you. You receive the gift. You know the gift. And instead of it being forced to move back vertically, it moves outwardly, and that actually becomes our worship. That becomes how we praise. That's what Paul said in Romans 15. Welcome, as you have been welcomed, you do this what? For God's glory, for his praise. So we receive good gifts, and those good gifts move outwardly. You might have remembered this uh, beautiful graphic I made last week. Love is you have been loved. The movement of gifts is that we receive, and those gifts move out of us. And what happens is when we receive God's gifts, it produces relationship. Yes, vertically, but also horizontally. That God's gifts produces community of giftedness. Paul goes on to say this in Colossians 2. He's worked through this prayer, then he sings a song, and he says this, my goal is that their hearts, talking about the community, would be encouraged and united together in love so that they may have all the riches of assurance that come with understanding, with knowing, with gnosis. 
so that they might know the secret plan of God, namely Christ. See, my goal is their hearts would be encouraged and united together in love. That as you receive the gift, it actually produces in us a gifted kind of community. We are made of people by God's gift. This is what Paul said in Galatians 3. There's no Jew, there's no Gentile, there's no conservative, there's no liberal, there's just gifted people who are all welcomed at the table. And it is a marvelous surprise, speaking of the surprise of gifts, that any of us are here at all. It's a marvelous surprise that any of us would be sitting side by side because church is not meant to be a people who are united on their theology or their beliefs. It is a people who are united in that they have experienced God's gift. We are people of the gift. We are misfits who don't technically belong together, which is exactly why we belong together. We are united in the gift and the surprise of belonging. Monsieur, this is what makes a good gift. It is personal. It is surprising. And it is relational. Now take those words with you, and I'm going to reread Colossians 1, verse 6, the center, the thesis, the heart of Paul's prayer, with those words in it. This is what Paul says. This message has been bearing fruit, wholeness, life and growing among you since the day you heard and truly knew, experienced, received God's personal, surprising, relational gift. In the same way, it is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world. As Paul says in verse 9, because of this we pray. All of our hopes, all of our anticipations come down to this, that you are receiving, have received, and should continue to receive gift. And the more you know, and the more you see it, and the more it soaks into your body, the more we can hope for more. There's a Christian philosopher named Esther Meeks who has this beautiful quote talking about what happens when our orientation in the world changes to that of gift. She says this, Thinking of reality as a gift, helps realign our orientation in knowing it, how we know and experience and interact with the world around us. For she says, for how you respond to a gift is highly personal. It must be so for gift enactment to be genuine. It must come from the person of God to the person of you. So if love is at the core of all things, if the agape love of Jesus is at the center, if reality is at its core, this act of interpersonal gift, then what does it mean for us? Knowing oh, is a responding gesture of love. Love should characterize the way we relate to the world. Seeing this whole thing is centered on the gift reorients our imagination, reorients our orientation in the world, how we know, how we live, how we experience, how we hope. The image that keeps coming to my mind as I think about this, it, it, it feels in some ways like, what if one day we lived in the economy we do, we had to pay for things, and then one day everything was a gift 
How might that change the world in which you live? It's the only metaphor I can find that feels big enough to describe what Paul is saying here. And it's similar to what Paul says himself. In the end of this passage, in verse 13, he says, God has rescued us from the control of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. He has set us free. What Paul is naming is that the orientation of gift is an orientation of freedom. The purpose is to live free. We are freed by the personal, surprising abundance of the gift that forms us. Missy, what would that change or make possible for you? Advent begins next week. And Advent is about receiving the gift of the incarnation, the gift of Jesus. That's the whole thing. Before we get there, like if we begin to see reality as reconstituted around the gift of God, how might that change the way we live in it? How might that change the way you relate to yourself? How might that change how you live with your neighbor? How might that change what you pray for or hope for or believe is possible next year? We're going to take a moment to answer that question before we get to the next season. And really, Advent is about receiving the gift, but all of next year for us at Missio is going to be about this question, responding to and receiving the surprising, personal, relational gift of God. Before we get there, what might you hope for? What might you anticipate? If you have your letters to the church journal, this is where you will use them. In a second, we'll create just like five minutes to give us some space to answer that question ourselves, to write out what is your own prayer of hope and anticipation. In that journal, you see where Paul goes next. It says, here's the center, here's the framework, the giftedness, and then he prays out of that for knowledge and endurance and joy. So maybe that's a framework or a reference or a guide, or maybe there's something personal that you can speak to. We're going to take a moment to write our own prayers of anticipation and hope. How and where can you experience the personal, surprising, relational gift of God? And what could a growing understanding of gift look like? So in a moment, we'll create space for that. But, but as we do, I'd like to pray for us. And I wrote my own prayer. This is mine, so that I hope is possible as we anticipate what comes next. So I'm going to pray this prayer over you, and then we're going to create five minutes to reflect and write our own prayers of anticipation. Ground them personally. What does it mean for you? What does it mean for your community? So Missy, let me pray for us, and then we will write our own prayers. I pray that together, all of us in all the places we are, would experience as much of God's gift as possible. I ask this for me as a participant and as a pastor, and I ask it for the community in which I live, that we would know the personal, intimate, 
and concrete reality of gift. That it would again and again surprise us with abundance, its incongruity, and its joy. And that it would cultivate in us a unity of love bigger than the walls that divide us or we use to hold us together. God, I ask that you make us today a people of gift who live and move in this world anticipating more of you as we find our freedom in an economy of grace. God, help us to see it, to receive it, and to give it away. In your name we pray. Amen.